Just a heads up for listeners, there's some profanity in this episode. And also, while the characters in this story are still awaiting trial, their crimes are alleged. It was uh, August 2nd, um, 2016, and uh, I got a phone call um, f- frantically asking me to go to my computer and, and, uh, and, and sort of evaluate what was going on. Phil Potter was the chief strategy officer of Bitfinex in 2016. This is him in an interview with Coindesk, a news site specializing in digital currencies. And sure enough, we were looking at our Bitco wallets getting drained. Uh, and I mean, at first we just didn't believe it, right? Uh, but as we dug into it, um, it became clear that um, we we were the victims of a of a hundred twenty thousand Bitcoin theft. Like many execs in the crypto industry, Phil had made his way up the ranks in the traditional financial system. He previously worked in wealth management at Morgan Stanley, but he hadn't solved a problem quite like this before. In the short history of crypto exchanges up to this point. There was no precedent for recovering from a hack. The irreversible nature of transactions, even when openly criminal, led to exchanges facing lawsuits, bankruptcy, and liquidation. In that fateful August morning, Phil watched as Bitfinex lost over half of its Bitcoin deposits. There was this big news that drops. What you know is what we know, and that is nearly $4.5 billion in Bitcoin. This is the Bitfinex hack. This should be Mm -hmm. circulating on late night. It's that funny. Not just the crypto world, financial space, the criminal space. What happened? Then, to everyone's surprise, just over a year later, the exchange made a full recovery. Bitfinex celebrated its most profitable month to date, and repaid all of the users who were victims of the theft. Well, in a way. Because the thing is, technically, all Bitfinex users were victims of the theft. Executives distributed the losses among all of their customers, shaving 36% of Bitcoin off every account, even the ones that hadn't been breached. Bitfinex repaid all users, not with Bitcoin or cash, but with an IOU token for that 36% that was taken from their account. And the token worked, unsurprisingly, much like a crypto asset. We took a haircut from people, we gave them IOUs, they were able to trade out of them if they wanted to, but if they sold them, you know, they they gave up their rights uh, in doing so. Um, And I think that there were people who bought those rights and that was a speculative effort on their behalf. Uh, Ultimately, Everyone got paid back dollar for dollar on those tokens, or they converted to equity. The token market inherently favored bigger customers, the people with the most capital who could buy tokens from other customers who needed to cut their losses and could not wait out the risk of Bitfinex's potential recovery. Um, And there will be people who come out of the woodwork thinking that they're owed something. Um, And I think that that will be up up to, you know, courts to potentially decide. And remember... Recovery was unlikely and unprecedented. There were so few safeguards in the unregulated industry. But at the same time, 
that lack of regulation allowed for risky, creative recovery plans. Like the IOU tokens. The value of the tokens began to rise as more customers bought them up, and with it, more trading, which led to Bitfinex reaping more earnings from transaction fees. It was risky, but it worked. Bitfinex outmaneuvered bankruptcy, but the whole story caused conspiracy to stir. Exchange CEOs and people in the industry contested the crime itself. It seemed suspicious. Did Bitfinex lose or make money from the hack? Was it, perhaps, the best trade ever made? Social media was rife with comments suggesting, quote, an inside job. And the customers who cashed in their IOU tokens early, recouping just a fraction of their losses, were outraged. And five years later, as of fall 2022, Bitfinex customers are still battling over regaining their stolen funds. The question of what to do with the billions of dollars in Bitcoin the DOJ seized remains unanswered. Amid the speculation and ongoing development of this story, one point is clear. When crypto users become victims of theft, their recovery is dependent on the very exchange that failed them. And these exchange failures, these were not rare events. It was as if the crypto industry was speed running through all of the major financial crises of the past two centuries in a matter of years. But not everyone saw that as a bad thing. I think that the one thing that this industry continues to learn is that we, we do learn from our mistakes. Um, and that is exchange by exchange, DeFi project by DeFi project. DeFi project. That's decentralized finance, crypto. Uh, there's been an explosion in wealth creation in the cryptocurrency space, but along with it has come an explosion in, in crime associated with stealing people's wealth. And uh, all I can say is that, you know, these types of events just make the industry ultimately more robust um, to future attacks. This is To Catch a Hacker. In this episode cryptocurrency regulation, what it is and why it's so hard to build around the open landscape of crypto trading. We also come to our last page in Heather and Ilya's story, the ending of which is still being written. Last we heard, they were arrested, charged with laundering Bitcoin, the very Bitcoin that was traced back to the Bitfinex hack. Heather and Ilya were not charged with the hack itself. Though even Phil Potter, the then CSO of Bitfinex, who you heard earlier, suggests that the hack could have been a social engineering email attack. Sound familiar? Social engineering is basically, I hate the term manipulating, but it's, it's getting someone to share information or take an action. That they anyway. Once the government seized the remaining sum of Bitcoin in Heather and Ilya's possession, they had a detention hearing, were deemed a flight risk, discussed a possible plea deal, and are still awaiting trial. Ilya is awaiting sentencing in prison. Heather is on house arrest on Wall Street. The conclusion of their story is unclear, and it's also unclear the effect it may have on how the U.S. regulates this medium. But what is clear is that something needs to be done. 
it's not like people aren't talking about it. Today, there are nearly 20,000 cryptocurrencies in existence. Unfortunately, these tokens do not always fall neatly Prices into Prices have fallen dramatically. Digital. Projects have imploded. Billions of dollars in value have been America lost. wants to lead in this sector. We must lead cryptocurrency market regulation. That regulator will have to have a builder's mentality. We have to decide on what risks we must guard against, what fundamental rights consumers should have, and how to use new tools for the greatest possible good. I think from a national security perspective, people are underestimating how, are thus inattention or, or not quite a mastering of it is a liability for our entire society. And in order for us to make up that ground, we need the entire society to learn more. So I think it's important for there to be a lot more public awareness to say, when I do understand it, I can protect myself, I can protect the government. It is not out of reach for me to understand and be able to handle safely and responsibly. This is Valerie Shen. You heard her in the last episode. She's the vice president for national security at Third Way. With her team, she's been mapping out the issue of crypto regulation since she joined the think tank. And part of her job is increasing awareness around the issue. I believe that all of this terminology that you hear and you don't understand are just shorthands for things that you do understand. At this point in the series, and if I've done my job correctly, hopefully you better understand the foundational layer of cryptocurrency and what goes into Bitcoin trading without necessarily having had the experience of transacting. But there's another level we still need to get into, the bureaucratic level. Do you believe in a society where you want to minimize harm to the public? Then if you do, if you care about the public interest, there needs to be some level of regulation. You have a lot of opportunists who can come into the space and do things that are not technically against the rules because they don't exist, but are very much the kinds of things we like to make rules against, right? And people are victimized in the meantime. Why hasn't crypto regulation taken root yet in the States? Well, it actually has, to some degree, just in the midst of a battlefield. But the problem is, right now, there's no understanding of whether crypto is a security or a commodity or when it is or when it is not. So it, it really falls down to each individual agency's exposure and how much they want to take the case. Those agencies include the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, and the Department of the Treasury, which the IRS is a part of. And to put it simply, every agency has the ability to interpret cryptocurrency as they see fit, even the very definition of what it is. Each agency has completely different understandings and vantage points. The IRS might see crypto differently than the SEC, and that's a problem. Crypto, specifically, has not been assigned clear lanes and jurisdictions, or at least how to carve up the crypto asset crime market into agencies specifically. Now, it's been under a completely different set of legal regime, and there's all kinds of laws that specify what happens to a security in this situation versus a commodity. In the case of the IRS, it would be income, because that's their jurisdiction over fraudulent income matters. So in the Bitfinex case, the IRS took it on. Because remember, 
Heather and Ilya were charged with money laundering, which would definitely be in the IRS's territory. You may recall IRS Special Agent Chris Janczewski, who was the lead investigator using blockchain analysis. That investigation lasted five years, until Ilya and Heather's arrest in February 2022. And within that stretch of time, believe it or not, no major developments in regulation took hold. But the crypto couple's story was everywhere. It went viral with high-profile news coverage. People well outside of the crypto world were starting to pay attention. The house had to be fully on fire before someone thought to put it out. And that sort of happened a month later, in March 2022, when the Biden administration announced the first-ever executive order on cryptocurrency. You could call it a modest step in the right direction. I call it a plan to have a plan. It was just an acknowledgement that they do not know who is supposed to take it, and there's no system for figuring that out right now, no formal one. And so they listed almost every agency you can think of to come together and discuss it and come up with something. But the first step is even just getting everyone to talk to each other about it. What followed was a summer of congressional hearings and reports. Like all things in government, I mean, certainly regulation, statutes, it comes down to prioritization. Let's step back from digital assets. We're, we're trying to level set here for policymakers. So is additional guidance defining clear rules of the road needed at this time? Uh, talk about the difference between uh, a stable coin versus a central bank digital currency and what advantages. Can you talk about some of the negative consequences that could happen if we take a heavy handed approach to regulating this developing technology? I don't think most lawmakers would say, oh, no, it's not important that we regulate the crypto market. People agree that it's important, but if it's not on the front burner, then it's not going to happen anytime soon. The other complication, not everyone wants it on the front burner. Big believers in crypto, investors, execs, you name it, are skeptical of regulation. On three, join me in giving your loudest freedom cry. One, two, I think it's sort of core to the identity of the original Bitcoin users that it's secure, secure from specifically the government and the government regulators. So it's not that it's meant to be regulated. It's original incarnation to say, hey, we should be basically entirely unregulated. That's freedom. There's advantages to that, etc. Freedom! Again, freedom! One more time, freedom! A lot of users, like the ones at this Bitcoin conference in April 2022, push against regulation because of their belief in its decentralized nature. But at this point, it's clear, cryptocurrency's decentralization is dissolving. It's a sobering truth for the people who leapt into the crypto world because they felt locked out of the traditional finance world. Now, bigger customers, the ones with the most spending power, amass even more. What's happening in practice now is the reality showing that, no, Bitcoin is not inherently decentralized because right now it is the people with the most resources, the people who bought in early, have a lot of control over the market, can pay for these mining operations and other things that gives them even larger control of the market. Crypto miners maintain the blockchains, 
creating those individual blocks of receipts. In the process, they earn virtual currency. And to put this into perspective, a 2022 report found that 60% of Bitcoin traffic, that maintenance of the blockchain, is handled by just three internet service providers. That's a lot of value creation for just a few people. At the end of the day, the idea that any cryptocurrency or a crypto asset is inherently decentralized is totally false because decentralization or, or lack thereof comes down to how these resources and assets are, are allocated. And if you actually look at who has the most power, it's getting less and less decentralized. Now, obviously, it's still more decentralized than traditional currency, but power begets power, and you're sort of starting to see that pattern happen naturally. But even the biggest players, the people with the most power in crypto, aren't protected against the form itself. The people who know about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies know that it fluctuates is just by how much. Because, again, unregulated, it doesn't have the kind of controls that would make the fluctuations less, like a normal stock market. But it'll always fluctuate. It's just a matter of how extreme they'll be. It might sound simple, but the more investment, the more risk. The idea is that regulation would create protections for all investors, regardless of their size and spending power. And the market would be less prone to outside manipulation. Overall, you would think it'd be a positive thing for anyone who's invested. So what would it actually look like? Maybe you see something suspicious. Can you be sure? If you see something, say something to local authorities. Do you remember when, all of a sudden, public safety ads started popping up everywhere with that slogan, if you see something, say something? It was a pretty effective ad campaign. If you experienced anything out of the ordinary, you'd know exactly what number to call and who you'd talk to. It was a promise of help and support, if you needed it. Now, sharp contrast, crypto crime is nowhere near set up for this sort of system. There's no hotline to call, let alone advertise. So for the past decade, since Bitcoin came about, it's been a bit of a free-for-all. And within that free-for-all, a new population was growing. Victims. People who've been conned, stolen from, or left in the dark with their crypto investments. But this is crypto. Transactions are irreversible and immutable. The belief was, that's just the way things were built. It's part of the landscape. No regulators needed. So some early researchers were envisioning ways to tackle this problem. We published this article, yeah, Fistful of Bitcoins, in 2013. Dr. Sarah Micklejohn has been our cryptocurrency expert this season. Before she became a professor in cryptography, she conducted research on crime in the early days of Bitcoin. And, you know, back then there was no chain analysis, there was no in-house expertise at, you know, the IRS or the FBI in, you know, tracking flows of Bitcoins. So I think, you know, that article got a fair amount of press. And I think people saw that and really had no one else to reach out to. You know, there just wasn't anyone in law enforcement at the time who was 
able to really take on these kinds of cases. The article Dr. Mickeljohn published with her team was one of the first guides to following the money on the blockchain. And as such, it got a lot of attention. For the first time, people who were victims of Bitcoin theft finally had some sort of beacon. So people started emailing Dr. Mickeljohn, asking for her help in tracking down their stolen Bitcoin. What I did when people reached out and said that their Bitcoins had been stolen, it's kind of what like an armchair investigator would do today, to be honest. So a lot of what I would do was really just manual, you know, clicking around on a browser-based blockchain explorer. So trying to see if, you know, the stolen Bitcoins had gone to any specific exchange or something like that, telling the victim of the um, theft that they could try to contact that exchange and give them that information. And that was probably their best bet. So by and large, I would say this was, as you might expect, fairly unsuccessful, right? I mean, even if I managed to track the stolen Bitcoins to a known source, you know, there probably isn't a lot of recourse for those victims. This is still the best process we have to fighting crypto crime. The difference today is that some of the people tracking down the data through blockchain analysis are members of law enforcement, like Chris Janczewski. And therefore, they sometimes have subpoena power. But even when the analysis yields leads and perpetrators are arrested, like in the Bitfinex case, the victims of the theft are still waiting for... justice? So first things first, part of regulation has to be about prevention. So if we're going to have the same level of effectiveness, and and that's to catch the perpetrators and then deter others, like maybe they'll think twice if someone's almost definitely going to be knocking at my door once I do this, the public needs to have awareness and needs to know who they can go to, who's going to be reliable, who's going to get results, you know, like reporting mechanisms. If you see something, say something. Or we have regulations that say, for transparency, you can't make this kind of transaction without reporting it to us, right? So there's very conceivably ways to mitigate the risk to the point where it'll just be like, oh, if someone stole my credit card and charged it, I'll probably get the money back. It's not guaranteed, but there's systems in place that help make that happen for traditional currency. And I think there could be similar, albeit different systems in place for cryptocurrency, but we're just nowhere close to there yet. There have been many crypto backers who've been extremely vocal about crypto supremacy over regulation and bureaucracy. It's a mainstream view in the crypto community. Crypto is supposed to be beyond the reach of any government or institution. They don't need regulators. The blockchain's open ledger solves the need for any arbiters or enforcers. It's a feature, not a bug. But is that really true, especially in the face of an event like the Bitfinex hack? Does this look like an industry that's working according to plan? To put it in context, 2022 was an awful year for crypto. Over the course of two months, in May and June, Cryptocurrencies lost approximately $1 trillion in value. Bitcoin itself had its worst month, almost since its inception, as it plummeted in value by 40%. That's one Bitcoin costing $68,000 one day, 
to below $20,000 another. Stablecoins collapsed and exchanges imploded. FTX, an exchange worth $32 billion, collapsed within a matter of days and was forced to declare bankruptcy in late 2022. The founder of that exchange, a 30-year-old named Sam Bakeman fried talked to Vox. What did he have to say on regulations? Quote, there's really no one out there making sure good things happen and bad things don't. In the same breath, he said, fuck regulators, and that he fucked up big multiple times. So billions in customer deposits are simply lost. The crypto winter that describes periods of rapid market drops looks more and more like a crypto ice age. And you may be wondering how crypto crashes like this affect the repayment and return of funds seized by the government. I am too. Like what happens next to the $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin the DOJ seized, for instance, is undetermined. It's not even clear who the legal owner of the stolen funds is. And while Bitfinex and its customers argue over who should be repaid, the Bitcoin sits in the government's crypto coffers, subject to the unbelievable dips of the market and draining in value. These questions will likely remain unanswered until Ilya and Heather's case is resolved. The evidence against them is overwhelming, but it's still hard to believe these two people were behind the largest known crypto laundering scheme to date. I don't know. I've never stolen a lot of crypto myself, but I imagine stealing a lot of crypto, it feels a little bit different just sort of emotionally than stealing a lot of physical capital. It's not like you're stuffing stolen $100 bills into the into the couch cushions necessarily. You have a couple hard drives that have a bunch of currency that is, is so fragile and ephemeral by its nature. It's digital finance, right? It, the victimhood is kind of abstracted away a little bit. But should it be? Can it continue on like this? It's so abstract to so many people. I think it's, it's going to take a while before most people are convinced by that idea that it's an evolution. It's the next wave of technology that you're already familiar with. But it's going to have implications for your business, for your personal finances, even if you don't trade in cryptocurrency, that will help you better protect yourself and certainly help better protect the country from various harms. You know, we're at a very early starting point, but that's the message I'd like to hit home, that you really should care for your own sake and for your country's sake. I'm a badass to say the least. Keep your bullshit, please. What? Razzle dazzle, living in a glass castle. From Third Way and Goat Rodeo, this has been To Catch a Hacker. This episode was produced and written by me, Jay Venables, with production assistance from Ian Enright. Special thanks to Valerie Shen and Mike Sexton for sharing their expertise with us. 
The interview with Phil Potter you heard at the start of this episode was from Coindesk's show, All About Bitcoin, with Christine Lee, from March 2022. The music you heard was by Goat Rodeo, sampled from RazzleCon. To learn more about crypto crime, cybersecurity, and law enforcement policy issues, visit thirdway.org. If you liked this episode and season two of To Catch a Hacker, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.